you have your Bibles, First Kings. Uh, today, uh, one of our elders, Elder Charles, he'll be preaching from the Word. But let me read uh, our passage today. First Kings, chapter 19. We're going to go verse 1 to 18. First Kings, chapter 19, verse 1 to 18. And we'll be reading from English Standard Version. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the, all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him, said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his, at his head a cake baked on hot, hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. Then he rose and ate and drank and went into the strength of that food 40 days, 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave, lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophet with the sword. I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Then he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by a great strong wind toward the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not. In the earthquake, after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I, even I, only am left. They seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mohalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the word of Jehu shall, shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed, bowed to bow, and every mouth that has not kissed them. This is the word of God. Thanks Good be night. to God. My check, check. Good afternoon, King's Cross. 
This is the fourth week we're looking at the life of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings. These historical accounts of the Bible, they tell things as they are. They do not hide inconvenient or embarrassing moments, including even periods of depression that its heroes experienced, which we see in our passage today. As a roadmap, today's message covers three topics. One, seek God's agenda. Two, pour out our hearts to God. Three, God is all that we need. One, seek God's agenda, pour out our hearts to God, and God is all that we need. We'll quickly recap the last few weeks and set the scene. Israel had prospered under King David and his son Solomon. Each of them had issues, but they generally both feared God. But after Solomon, the nation split into the southern kingdom, Judah, led by Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and the northern kingdom, Israel, led by Jeroboam, who had rebelled against Rehoboam. Ahab is a seventh king of the northern kingdom, Israel, and each one of the seven kings has been successively worse and evil in turning away from God. They've gone from bad to worse six times, accompanied by murders and coups. Ahab married a foreign princess named Jezebel, and she was not a Disney princess. Jezebel introduces the worship of the foreign fertility god Baal, and Ahab, Jezebel, and the entire nation are living in idolatry far from God. In this dark and hopeless time, God raises up Elijah, like a lone star on a dark night. And like Moses, who had gone up to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, Israel goes up to Ahab and says, Ahab, the nation needs to turn back to God. You're leading them in the wrong direction. There will be no rain in the land until I give the word. Elijah was a bad man. As with all promises of God, Elijah's word comes true. And after years of drought, Elijah calls out the entire nation to Mount Carmel, and he says, let's see once and for all which God is real. And it's like a scene out of a kung fu movie or a video game when one person fights an entire army. Elijah, by himself, against 850 prophets against him, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah who ate at Jezebel's table, in front of a massive gathering of people, including King Ahab, there were likely thousands of people there. This was the World Cup final or the BTS Taylor Swift or New Jeans concert of the day. On this grand stage, the prophets of Baal called to Baal unsuccessfully for hours. They're shouting, they're cutting themselves. Nothing happens. Elijah then says a simple prayer to the Lord God, and God answers with fire from heaven to show that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is God. They take the 850 prophets down to the river and kill them. It is a great victory for the Lord and Elijah. Then, for the first time in three and a half years, heavy rain starts to fall on the land. Baal, the god of fertility, could not bring about rain or fire and had proven to be impotent and a fraud before the living God of Israel. That brings us to our first topic today, Seek God's Agenda. As I mentioned, Jezebel was a princess, and only in the sense that she was the daughter of a king, Ethbal of the Sidonians. She was a foreign woman living under the Israelites, living amongst the Israelites, but she had considerable power and influence as queen. 
And she may basically have been the king from what we can tell from her interactions with Ahab in verses 1 and 2. When we think of foreign women in the Bible, two of the five foreign women, uh, two of the five women who are specifically mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 are actually foreign women, Rahab and Ruth. Jezebel had all the opportunity in the world to be remembered together with Rahab and Ruth as an esteemed woman who followed God. Jezebel had seen God's power and Elijah praying for the drought that Baal could not fix. It was right in front of her. Elijah had invited everybody to Mount Carmel to witness the power of God. She only needed to open her eyes to God, open her heart to God and the truth. Did you notice that Jezebel did not go to Mount Carmel even as her husband, King Ahab, did? That's why Ahab had to tell her about it in verse 1. I think her absence was intentional. If Jezebel had a slogan for her role, it would have been, make Baal great in Israel. She likely feared that people returning to the God of Israel would undermine her power and influence, and that was much more important to her than seeking the truth and following the true and living God. If she had witnessed God's victory at Mount Carmel, it would have been much more difficult for her to continue to reject him. By staying in Jezreel, she can say, I didn't see it, I don't care. It's like a kid who puts his hands to his ears and says, I can't hear you, even as wisdom is being spoken to him. Jezebel was so set on her own agenda, she was not going to change her mind about God no matter what happened. We are living in an increasingly godless society, a society that tells us to primarily live for comfort, personal comfort, Instagrammable experiences, and for wealth and worldly glory. Jezebel may represent those who actively reject God and go all in to live the godless life. It is a road that ultimately leads to destruction, as we see at the end of Jezebel's life. In contrast, Elijah lived to follow God's agenda and aligned his heart with God's. But like all of us, he was not perfect. Even Elijah had temptations to make life about himself and to follow his own agenda. In verse 4, when Elijah says, I'm no better than my ancestors, perhaps a part of him had wanted to become a hero, the greatest prophet ever. The prophet who wins the great victory at Mount Carmel and oversees the full restoration of Israel. Perhaps a part of Elijah had sought his identity in this achievement that he had in mind. And we'll, get, we'll have more on that later. But that was not God's plan. It was not Elijah's job to save the world. That was a burden too big for Elijah anyway. And Jesus would do that in due course. Elijah simply needed to walk with God and obey him daily. Today, in September 2023, what is the first love in our hearts? What's our agenda? Are we seeking God's agenda or our own? As we'll see, joy is found in God alone and in our identity as his children. Seeking our own agendas is a road that leads to destruction. Keep our eyes on God, follow his agenda, and we'll find true life, even in death. Let's continue in our story, and we'll get more into the text to discuss the second topic, pour out our hearts to God. Immediately before our passage today in chapter 18, verse 46, it feels a little bit like the end of a superhero movie. The climactic action at Mount Carmel has unfolded. The hero has prevailed. 
the world has been saved. God had won, and like Superman flying off into the sky, Elijah tucks in his cloak and outruns a chariot 50 kilometers back to the winter capital Jezreel to bask in the glory. Perhaps there is a parade waiting for him, like when an army returns after a great victory. So with this background, the first five verses of today's passage are a bit puzzling on the first pass. Elijah arrives at Jezreel, then receives a message from Jezebel that basically says, I will kill you by tomorrow. And after everything that we've read until now, what would we expect to happen? This great prophet who had stopped rain for three and a half years with prayer, whom God had provided for in the wilderness during a drought through ravens, who had multiplied bread and oil for months or years on the end, who had raised the dead, who had brought the fire of God down from heaven and single-handedly stood up to and killed 850 opposing prophets and who had just outrun a chariot in the power of the Lord 50 kilometers from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, how would this great prophet with this resume and experience respond to this threat from this one evil, crazy, murderous woman? Perhaps he would scoff as he read the letter and write back, similar to how he taunted the prophets on Mount Carmel. Uh, Jezebel, you do know you're writing to the person who did that to your 850 prophets, right? You evil woman, that same fire from Mount Carmel is going to come down on your palace tomorrow. And if you start running now, maybe you can save your skin. What is Elijah going to do? And in a surprising and unexpected twist, verse 3 tells us that Elijah became afraid and began running for his life. He runs south all the way to Beersheba, which was over 170 kilometers from Jezreel. He leaves his servant in Beersheba and goes another day's journey into the wilderness, sits down under a broom bush, and prays that he might die. What the heck just happened? Did Elijah suddenly learn fear at this very moment? If death and Jezebel killing him was what he was truly afraid of, then doesn't makes what he doesn't make sense what he says in verse 4 god i want to die in my bible in verse 3 where it says elijah was afraid there is a note that this may be translated elijah saw elijah saw that something that he had eagerly anticipated and patiently waited for would not come true as he had hoped elijah had just endured a really difficult three and a half years he had been Israel's most wanted man, always on the run. Still, Elijah had endured as he saw God's provision and miracles, and as he had a hope that there would come a day when he would show once and for all that the Lord was God. Once he did that, the nation was going to turn back to God, regain the former glory that it had enjoyed under David and Solomon, and he can be an esteemed figure in that new kingdom. We see this hope in the prayer that Elijah prays before the fire fell on Mount Carmel. Elijah prayed, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So with this hope and expectation that he was going to renew the nation, Elijah was able to endure pretty much everything. And it was even a noble, godly vision that Elijah wanted to achieve. After Mount Carmel, Elijah believed that he had achieved it. But what happens? 
Ahab comes back from Mount Carmel, probably a bit excited after everything that he had seen, and tells Jezebel, and out gives Jezebel an eyewitness account of what's happened. After hearing that, Jezebel's icy cold heart remains just as cold, just as hard. She does not repent and acknowledge God as Lord. The people who had seen the fire from heaven and killed the prophets uh, do not rise up and overthrow Ahab and Jezebel. There is not much change at all. What a letdown. Elijah saw that his hope would not become reality after his great victory, at least not how he imagined. He's crushed, and he starts to run. Some of us may have experienced something similar uh, with a career path or relationship that did not turn out as we had hoped after years of investment. Or perhaps a loved one who was not healed from a sickness or who did not receive salvation after countless prayers or who passed away suddenly without warning. Some of us may be in one of those dark periods right now. It was in the power of the Lord that Elijah ran from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, but it is in fear and frustration that he runs from Jezreel to Beersheba. Despair, fear, disillusionment, hopelessness are some of the emotions that Elijah may have been feeling as he saw that this evil, murderous Jezebel will continue to lead Israel. Also, it seems that Elijah was burned out mentally and dead tired physically after all the years of hiding and struggle that he had endured. Perhaps he also felt anger and resentment at God, perhaps in self-pity. Elijah is spent. His fuel gauge is at E. He wants to throw in the towel. Many commentators describe this as Elijah's depression. After all that running, Elijah finally collapses under the broom bush and goes to sleep. This passage is comforting in that it shows that even God's greatest followers had low and dark moments like this. The Bible is real about life. This side of heaven, each one of us will face all kinds of hardships and struggles. Followers of Jesus do not get a free pass. Sometimes life is more difficult because we follow Jesus. When like Elijah, great spiritual victories and mountaintop experiences are often followed by periods of spiritual emptiness and valleys. On the screen, hopefully, are Elijah's words in our passage in verses 4, 10, and 14. Can we go to the, um, the passage? Is that possible? To paraphrase, verse 4, I want to God, I want to die. Um, we read that earlier in the passage, verse 4. Please do notice that Elijah does not believe he has a right to take his own life. In verse 10, if you have your Bibles, please feel free to follow along. It says, I'm the only one standing. I did all this work for you, and they still want to kill me. I'm sick of being hated in society. And in verse 14, he says, God, I'm the only one left standing. I, this, I did all this work for you, and they still want to kill me. Actually, that, was, that repetition was uh, intentional because verses 10 and 14, he says basically the same thing. And have you ever, uh, that sort of tells you where Elijah's at in his mind. And have you ever been so hurt and down that you were basically like a broken record repeating your complaints and what you're feeling? At those times, God invites us to see what 
to see what Elijah is doing in our passage and follow that example, seeking God and pouring out our heart to him. We can run from God and try to be alone in our self-pity, or we can keep our hearts open to God and lay our struggles at his feet. Elijah had run away, but he did not shut out God from speaking to him. As a parent of preteens, one thing that my wife and I try to be sure to do is to keep communication lines open with our kids. It's only when they tell us about the struggles that they're going through that we have a chance of helping them through it. Pray for wisdom to know how to interact with our children so that they do not shut us out. God is listening and speaking to us as long as we're not shutting him out. Husbands, here's a marriage tip that's taken me 15 years to learn. Um, you see, I, I pick up on these things very quickly. Sometimes all of our wives need is someone to listen. She may not even make sense or even say something completely wrong factually, only once in a blue moon, of course. But it's not required that husbands point these out in every instance. Sometimes it may be necessary to speak the truth in love, but other times it may be better just to hold our tongues and listen and pray. 15 years, guys. Elijah is complaining, and he's saying things that are factually wrong, though they are true to how he feels. Elijah says in verses 10 and 14, I'm the only one left. Elijah should know very well that's not true because Obadiah had told him earlier that he hid a hundred prophets of the Lord in two caves and also because we saw in today's passage that he left his servant in Beersheba. So I'm the only one left. That's clearly untrue. Do you see what God does the first time Elijah says this in verse 10? Nothing. He lets Elijah vent. God lets Elijah ramble and process and verbalize what he was feeling. And the Psalms are full of people pouring out the depths of their hearts to God. Just to mention a few examples you see on the screen. God, my soul is in anguish. How long? The previous slide, please. Um, my soul is in anguish. How long will this go on? God, why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? God, why do the evil prosper? It's normal for Christians to go through the valleys of life. During these times, we can bring all the cares of our hearts before God. He wants us to bring to him our joys, our troubles, our cares, our everything, because what God wants most of all and what we need most of all is a relationship with God. That leads us to our final topic today. God is all that we need. After Elijah goes to sleep under the bush in verse 5, there comes another unexpected scene. The last time you saw Elijah in the wilderness where he had gone on God's command, God provided ravens to feed him. Here, after Elijah had run away from God in Jezreel and instead despaired and asked to die, God gives him warm bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water at least twice. He sleeps and he eats and he sleeps and he eats 
we don't know exactly for how long. God knew that Elijah's greatest need at this time was physical rest and refreshment. I'm not that curious to taste whatever the ravens brought to Elijah in the wilderness, but I am very curious to know what Elijah tasted here. If you were fortunate to have had a mom or dad, somebody cook you porridge or chicken soup or some other comfort food when you got sick growing up, that's the picture of God here. Commentators have described this as a tender scene of God's loving care and provision for Elijah. And this heavenly bread is crazy superfood because verse 8 tells us Elijah went 40 days and nights in the strength of that food to Horeb or Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God tells Elijah to go stand on a rock, very much like how God had told Moses in Exodus 33 on the same mountain to go to stand on a rock for God to pass by him. It may have even been the exact same spot. Then God brings a strong wind, an earthquake, and a fire, but he was not in any of them in appearing to Elijah. Instead, God shows up in a low whisper. Fire, wind, and earthquake are actually various ways that God reveals himself to his people in the Bible. Fire. God appeared to Abraham as a blazing torch in Genesis 15. In Exodus, God spoke to Moses in the burning bush and led the Israelites through the desert as a pillar of fire. Wind. When God appears to Job at the end of Job 38, it says the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. At Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came as a violent wind and also what appeared to be tongues of fire. Earthquake. In Exodus 19, after Moses had come down from the mountain at Mount Sinai and the people had gathered at the foot of the mountain, the whole mountain trembled violently, which is understood to have been an earthquake. After Jesus' death in Matthew 27, there was an earthquake and the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom to show that we have access to God through Jesus. God brings an earthquake in Acts 16 to rescue Paul and Silas from prison. Clearly, this passage is not saying that God never comes as fire, wind, or earthquake, or a hundred different ways or a thousand different ways that he can make himself known to us. Why did God show up to Elijah as a whisper here? As we know, Elijah had seen a lot of the spectacular already. What Elijah needed most at this moment in his distress and loneliness was a connection and a touch deep in his heart. God may have been saying to Elijah, it's not the spectacular restoration of Israel or any other achievement that will satisfy your soul and your deepest longings. Only thing that can satisfy you is a relationship with me. Just follow me daily. Don't look to the result or outward circumstances for your happiness. By the way, Elijah, you're not alone. I have set aside 7,000 others fighting the same battle together with you. Be encouraged. Elijah then goes on to carry out God's instructions to the end of his life until he's taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. God is far beyond our imagination. We cannot predict his actions or plans or see with his perspective or put him in any of our boxes or categories and how he shows up or how he works. 
However, God's character remains consistent through the ages. Our God is a God who seeks the lost because God knows each one of us has a hole in our hearts that will only be satisfied by him. Because we were created for his love. To each person that is lost and alone, to you and to me, God comes and speaks to us as we need to hear, just as he spoke to Elijah under the broom tree. We know this is who God is because this is a recurring theme in the Bible. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were confused and fearful and hid from God after realizing their nakedness, after eating the fruit that God had told them not to eat, God called to them, where are you? and then provided coverings to hide their nakedness. In Genesis 21, after Sarah had kicked out her servant Hagar and her son Ishmael from Abraham's household, Hagar also sat down under a bush near Beersheba and waited to die. A bush near Beersheba waiting to die. Does that sound familiar? It's a scene very similar to Elijah's in our passage today. God meets Hagar in her distress, and provides water for her and Ishmael to survive. As a servant, and as a clear second to the wife Sarah, Hagar likely questioned her value as a person. But this bush near Beersheba was not the first, but the second time that God found Hagar and spoke to her in her suffering. God sees everyone, no matter your position in society. Quoting from the lyrics of the Backstreet Boys, it's God who says to us, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you've done, do I know all that? I'm here to love you. Let's have a relationship. Thousands of years later, the Apostle Peter, after declaring that he would never desert Jesus, even if everyone else fell away, deserted Jesus in his moment of greatest need and also denied knowing him three times as Jesus had predicted. After these events, Peter was in a bad state, confused about the last three years, ashamed of his actions, and he went back to something familiar, fishing. After his resurrection, Jesus found Peter at the beach and cooked breakfast for him and the other disciples before forgiving Peter and restoring him. For these fishermen, the resurrected Jesus cooks grilled fish, which I'm willing to bet was some of the best grilled fish in history. Do you know what he did with the wine at the wedding of Cana? You see how God even changes the menu to fit the people and situation? I can only imagine that when Elijah saw this scene from heaven, he was reminded of the time that God had cooked bread over hot stones for him after he had run away and let God down. God found each one of these individuals confused, lost, down, and wandering, and gave each, each of them exactly what they needed. And what each of them needed at the end of the day was Jesus himself. The covering of skin for Adam and Eve, the water for Hagar, the bread and water for Elijah, 
Jesus' personal post-resurrection appearance and restoration of Peter, each of these things actually point to Jesus. As God covered Adam and Eve with garments of skin to cover their nakedness, which required the life of an animal, Jesus himself covered our sins and shame once and for all with his body and his blood on the cross. As God refreshed and saved Hagar with water and provided warm bread and water to Elijah that gave him the strength to go to Mount Sinai, Jesus declared that he is the living water and the bread of life and that whoever comes to him will never be thirsty or hungry. Jesus forgave and restored Peter to a right relationship to, with him after that victory that he won on the cross. To Adam and Eve, Hagar, Peter, Elijah, and to us today, Jesus goes to them in their distress and offers himself ultimately as their solution. This is powerful because it tells us it means that everything that we need is just a prayer away. Throughout the Bible, God is consistently the good shepherd who goes out time and again to seek and save the sheep that are lost. We will all have periods in our lives when we are like one of these lost sheep, living for our own agendas or running from God or just not listening to his voice as we should. Today, God encourages us to once again seek his agenda, pour out our hearts honestly to him wherever we may be, and find our satisfaction and joy in Jesus alone, the wonderful Savior who loved us enough to go to the cross on our behalf and who's now gone ahead to cook up an incredible feast for us. This kind of God rightly deserves all of our trust and love. We'll conclude with the last paragraph in Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. During a dark time in her life, a woman in my congregation complained that she had prayed over and over, God, help me find you, but had gotten nowhere. A Christian friend suggested to her that she might change her prayer to, God, come and find me. After all, you are the good shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. She concluded when she was recounting this to me, the only reason I can tell you the story is he did. Let's pray. God, wherever we may be today, I pray we will come before you and honestly share with you everything on our hearts and allow you to minister to us deep within that we may be satisfied in you alone and lead changed lives for your agenda in gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.